a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I appreciate it because I know you have a choice. In fact, I know you have many choices as far as where to send your attention and what voices to listen to. And the fact that uh, you would tune in, well, it means a lot to me. So I'm going to do my best to deliver to you information that will be timely and credible and hopefully informative and encouraging. Look, the, the thing I would really like you to take away from anything that I share with you is, first and foremost, you are not alone. Whether it's in your quest for truth, whether it's in your quest for meaning, or simply your quest to maintain your freedom in an increasingly unfree world, you're not alone. <clears throat> I know the systems that try to rule us like to, to make us feel very isolated. Well, you're the odd person out, and you know, you're you're out of touch with other people because you're you're not in this like the rest of us, you know. In fact, we're gonna talk a little bit about what the, the craziness was just a couple of short years ago. It's been it's been three years since we were really at kind of the peak of the whole, you know, get everybody vaccinated and, you know, everybody, why aren't you wearing your mask kind of stuff? So those memories fade quickly. In fact, I've got a great article here that we'll get to a little bit later on that that shows it. The covid insanity happened long enough ago that it's it's almost like it never happened. And I'm not saying we need to uh, we need to wallow in this. We need to make sure that we're just, you know, constantly upset and angry. But we need to remember so we don't make the same mistakes again. That makes sense? Okay. Hey, I want to give a quick thanks to my sponsors who make this program possible. A special singled out thank you to Iron Sight Brewing Company. That is the coffee company, subscription coffee company, started by my friend John Harvey host of the American Conservative Podcast. The Modern Conservative Podcast. There we go. And uh, anyway, worth your time to check it out. You can click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com or you can go to ironsightbc.com. So, where to begin? What if we would just start with the premise, uh, would you say that we live in unpredictable times? I mean, some things are predictable, right? It's an election year. People are going to be becoming unhinged and uh, politicians will promise anything that they have to promise in order to get elected. And then they'll do whatever they have to do in order to stay in power. So that part's predictable, but the economy, the uh, purchasing power of your dollar prices, that's all pretty unpredictable. So during unpredictable times, having stored food on hand is one way to find peace of mind. Well, how do you know that? Well, it's because I've been doing it for years and years. Now, sometimes I've, I've uh, been better stocked than others, but there's something about having the equivalent of a small grocery store in your pantry or in your storeroom or wherever you have space to store it to where when something goes, uh, goes wrong or we run out of something, hey, you know, we need to get this, you can just walk to the room next door and grab it and there it is. I've, I've got it. Not everybody thinks that way, though. In fact, uh, I have a daughter who lives in, in Europe with her husband and her two kids and and they, look, life there is, is pretty good. 
it's it's a little more tightly controlled. Of course, they they live in a a more more socialist type government than than we do. I know, hard to believe. What's interesting to me though is that government very clearly and very officially discourages people from storing food. So stopping by the market, you know, to pick up whatever is going to be for dinner, that's kind of the way it goes. Even the refrigerators and stoves and everything are much, much smaller. And part of that is for energy efficiency and part of it's just because there's, there's a mindset that says, you know, you will always have what you need down at the market. So, you know, just make plans on stopping in there daily or every other day or something. I don't think that way, though. I think in terms of, well, you know, what if I couldn't go to the market? What if, uh, what if I had to fall back on supplies to, uh, to cover whatever I needed for, for an extended period of time? Could it be for 72 hours? Could it be for, you know, a multi-week event? Could it be for something much more long-term? What would I do? And I'll grant you, I don't have it down perfectly, but I just want to have some options. In fact, I'm going to share with you an article from Madge Waggy. This is from the 7WAP Home Blog. And it answers the question, how much food should you have in your long-term food cash? Believe it or not, the answer is to look to the 19th century for the solution. Small-scale farming and keeping of animals actually could be the uh, lifestyle if we see a major disruption of some kind. Now, Madge describes it like this. She says, so, the S hit the fan, and now you've successfully bugged in or bugged out according to your contingency plans. So now what? Is this going to be a long-term crisis due to war, asteroid strike, or solar flare EMP? What's long-term for you? Is it a couple of weeks, a couple months, several years? Madge's suggestion is there's three distinct duration intervals for which you should stock up supplies. And I think this is good advice. 72-hour events, something happened while you're at work or school or stuck at home. Could be a riot, a power outage, maybe even a minor earthquake. So you might need to use your bug-out bag, your get-home bag, or get out of Dodge kits to get home or stay at home until the crisis passes. Most people already have food and beverages at home to where they're not going to have trouble surviving a three-day event. Of course, food is just one supply that's needed to survive in winter. You need heat and power, lighting, communications, things like that. Next, she talks about multi-week events, noting that recently there have been several events affecting people in the United States that impacted their lives for weeks and months at a time. Winter blackouts have lasted for weeks on end, sometimes combined with lack of running water, no heating, or impassable secondary roads to suburbs. Floods and hurricanes often destroy houses, clothing, and vehicles, and much-needed supplies like food. So those events may actually call for relocation to a bug-out location where you've put away supplies in advance or maybe even a prepared relative's home several hundred miles away from the impact area. By the way, just as an aside, I don't know if you saw the rain that uh, Southern California has picked up just in the last couple of days. Holy smoke. And and, and I don't say this just, you know, for, for the scare factor, but uh, Ben from Suspicious Observers, who watches, you know, all of the things going on with our son, warns that uh, right now with the, the, solar, the solar energy cycle, um, there's a great risk, an increased risk of seismic activity. Can you imagine an earthquake on top of the flooding that Southern California has already been receiving? Holy cow. Liquefaction already has a bit of a head start here. If that ground starts shaking, that that could be epic. 
And I don't mean in a good way. Okay, the third category that Madge Waggy talks about is long-term events. Now, we're talking the devastation of war or catastrophic natural, catastrophic natural disasters or economic collapse. That could make your current home and lifestyle into nothing more than a memory. In fact, she says the survivors of the 2004 uh, tsunami and the New Orleans Katrina flooding in 2005, just a couple of examples of events that leave survivors with nothing but the clothes on their back and no choice but to relocate and start over. How do you prepare for that kind of a long-term event, she asks. Can you trust your supplies will be safe and available in your current home? Should you split your supplies across several locations to hedge against the impact of the possible disaster? In fact, she asks, what can you do now to prepare for the recovery and rebuilding of your life? Now, of course, if you have unlimited financial resources, well, you buy a bunker and you stock it with all the imaginable types of supplies, something that would last for decades. Why not, right? <laughs> but for most people who work just to get by with just a paycheck or two between their current lifestyle and bankruptcy, every decision and every purchase toward long-term preparation has to be beneficial by cost and ultimate value. So from here, she goes into some different details as far as, you know, having a bug out location and what it would take to feed a family of four over a year's time, the food, the water that you'll need. And she says, we also need to look to the 19th century for solutions. Small scale farming and keeping of animals may be the way to keep providing for yourself in a long term situation. If you're at your bug out location, for instance, longer than a year and committed for the near future to that location, then gardening and farming should become your new occupation. A couple of acres of land can produce a lot of food. In fact, you don't even need acres. If you if you have the right tools and seeds and so forth, you could basically do away with where your lawn is and, and grow enough food to, to more than feed yourself, or at least to, to augment uh, so much of what you eat. So I'm going to include this link to the article in today's show notes at the thebrianhideshow.com. These are show notes for February 7th, 2024, and I encourage you to just take a quick look at this and just think things through. Chances are, if you're hearing this, you know, if you're listening to this program, you're probably already a preparedness-minded individual. Who knows? You may be light years ahead of the rest of us in terms of, you know, being prepared for the unexpected. But I guarantee there are people in your immediate orbit who are not so well prepared and who could greatly benefit from your example as well as your mentoring. So you might want to think about helping them get themselves squared away. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm going to ask you, please consider doing so. Go to thebrianhydeshow.com. Listen, while you're on that website, and if you're going to subscribe to my show notes, can I ask one further favor? On the Brian Hyde Show website, you will find a link to Hide in Plain Sight. This is a little daily two-minute uh, feature that, uh, that I have been doing now for a little over a year. And I would just ask you to please consider subscribing if you haven't already. Or if you have subscribed, maybe consider telling a friend. This is free of charge, and it's just a little two-minute uh, daily truth bomb to help you see through the fog. It's not political. 
It's not, uh, I'm not dispensing all the answers to life's questions. I'm simply trying to offer encouragement to people who are determined to live life on their own terms. I will give you some helpful tools to work with, or at least helpful principles and practices that can can give you the courage and fortitude to stand on your own feet. But I'm trying to get the word out. And if you could help other people find, hide in plain sight. That's, uh, that's my Substack. It's very easy to find and hopefully worth your while. Anyway, thank you very much. Let's take a moment to talk about how each of us has greater influence than we realize. Now, I'm not just talking about your voice or, you know, your political voting capabilities or how you can organize your friends and your neighbors. I'm also talking about how to put your money where your morals are. Got a great article here from uh, Laura Williams. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. This one actually harkens back a few years ago. And it talks about social responsibility means using the impact you have on the world to promote change. Your spending habits says Laura Williams, are a huge source of local, vocal activism. Now, she says, several Christmases ago, I stopped buying NCAA-branded gifts for my football fanatic in-laws because the NCAA's treatments of student-athletes is abysmal. Recent reports that some college sports were being made with the forced labor of Muslim Chinese Uyghurs may convince more shoppers to boycott. Laura Williams says our beliefs and our behaviors dictate our buying decisions at least as much as our desires, or they should, if we're paying attention. She says when you spend an extra $2 or $5 on hormone-free, range-free eggs, you're purchasing some reassurance. You can reward the farmers who agree with your views about how chickens should be treated or what they should be fed. But in an increasingly complex supply chain, how practical is it to express your values through buying choices? Now, she's talking specifically to the millennials here who are entering their prime earning years and will overtake boomers as the generation with the largest purchasing power. They'll leapfrog the smaller Generation X with larger numbers, more than making up for their lower incomes. And, of course, that means corporations, especially retailers, are eager to cater to millennial desires. Generation Z, which will be the richest generation in human history, is already generating discussion by being choosier about brands that reflect or reject its values. So by voting every day at the cash register or your online cart if you shop online, young people are leading the way in supporting companies that prioritize or at least publicize making the world better, in addition to making products they love. So Laura Williams says, look, economics is all about trade-offs. And conscious choice encourages us to navigate an imperfect world as best we can. Vegans try to avoid all foods of animal origin. Many people feel strongly about supporting fair trade coffee and cocoa, even though it's more expensive, and the fairness to small farmers is dubious. Some some Christian conservatives, for instance, make a point of supporting Chick-fil-A because they vocally support traditional values and give all employees Sundays off. Many woke millennials boycott those delicious chicken sammies over Chick-fil-A's record on LGBTQ issues, prompting an apparent change to company policy. Amid the the cultural proxy war, sales doubled. Now, Laura says all of those choices are valid, and they're valid because we honor our own values by putting our own money into the things that we care about. Which brings us to the political power of the purse. Laura Williams says this kind of conscious consumption is privileged by definition. In other words, it requires financial security to reject the most affordable version of just about everything. 
It's also not clear whether eco-friendly marketing hype corresponds to real change or just attempts to woo customers with greenwashing. Even when we're deliberate about our buying choices, she says it's difficult to know if we're making a meaningful difference or not. So we love our smartphones, even though making them requires rare earth minerals. And every upgrade creates toxic e-waste. We increasingly prioritize travel and special events, despite the high carbon emissions from planes. She talks about how young people rewarded Nike with a $6 billion boost in brand value for its support of the race-conscious Colin Kaepernick forgetting temporarily the dire working conditions of other people of color in the Nike supply chain. She says vegan cosmetics replace animal-derived oils with palm oil, even though palm oil plantations are a leading cause of rainforest destruction. And when consumer pressure urged brand or encouraged brands to go palm oil-free, replacement oils proved even worse for the environment. I think there's a lesson in there somewhere, but anyway, she says she's written before about the invisible consequences of well-intended consumer trends, saying when we embrace the meatless burger as victory over factory farming, we don't consider how much added land has to be cleared to raise soybeans. We enthuse about zero-emission electric cars, but fail to see the coal-burning power plant at the other end of our electricity grid. She says we agree to eschew plastic straws without calculating whether strawless lids actually use more plastic. We protest pipelines without considering how many tanker trucks must be added to move that fuel to heat homes. We decry fossil fuels as dirty or villainous without appreciating their role in protecting forests which would otherwise be farmed or burned for fuel. So in short... The complexity of the modern market, with its unprecedented connectivity and shared prosperity, makes it challenging to understand the implications of our actions. But Laura Williams says that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Maybe there's no such thing as a perfectly pristine dollar made or spent. Our global supply chain is so sprawling we simply can't be sure that every worker is treated well or every environmental precaution is taken. But she says where we go wrong is when we try to impose our values on other people or when we demand to use other people's money to support what we do value. Our values are so individual that she says tasking someone else with defending them is always going to result in disappointment, whether that's Amazon or a government agency. Social responsibility doesn't mean bullying people who have different beliefs or badgering them to make changes you think are necessary. It means using the impact you have on the world to promote change. And your spending habits are a huge source of local, vocal activism. Yeah, I can't disagree. And I'll grant you, Laura Williams here, it sounds like, you know, she might she might have a, a few more, um, I'm not going to say woke priorities, but uh, she, she definitely seems to reflect, you know, the, the, the priorities of, say, Gen Z and maybe maybe the millennials. But I love her take as far as, you know, putting your money where your morals are. That's actually a pretty good way to go. It's, it's much better than lobbying for, well, government ought to be in charge of this and ought to force people to do that and force people to do that because we know what's right. I like the idea, too, that, uh, you know, I'm, I like to support companies that I know are very supportive of freedom. And part of this, I guess, comes from the pushback of, the, the craziness of these companies that have, have been swept away in the whole diversity, equity, inclusion mindset. By the way, Elon Musk uh, released a, a 
leaked document from Disney that someone sent to him. And holy cow, the things that that they are required to do, this is within the Disney Entertainment Wing, you know, in order to, to make sure that every show, you know, is is properly, you know, showing the, the proper DEI uh, values. There's like four different levels, and they have to meet at least three of these uh, these demands on 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 each of these levels in order to to really be living up to their diversity, equity, and inclusion mandates. It's it's a mental exercise, and it makes you wonder how Disney is even in business because it's all about uh, you know correct attitudes, not about entertaining people, not about making money. You got to wonder when when did that change actually kick in? Cuz it's definitely here. This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. So, I thought we could take a little uh, moment here to talk about uh, the COVID insanity that seems like it was so long ago, and yet it it really wasn't that long, but, you know, I think we were relieved to get it behind us, and now it's, it's almost like it never happened. And the danger here, of course, is that there are plenty of people who were responsible for, you know, enforcing and for uh, advocating for the lockdowns and the mask mandates and the distancing and closing of schools and closing of businesses and so forth. They don't really want anybody to remember either. They'd kind of like to skate on this. In fact, they'd, they'd prefer we just drop it and move along. But we can't. That's why I want to share this article with you. Um, I'm going to butcher his name. Charles Kerblich. Kerblich. I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but he has this article on the Brownstone Institute website so long ago that it never really happened. And it really describes well the mindset of of how we've just adapted and all right, it's behind us. So I guess we can just, you know, move on. But listen, listen to why there there are some aspects of moving on that we may not be doing ourselves quite the, the favor we think we are. Charles says his election season rolls on. And the nation looks set for an election rematch between the mandate ordering Joseph Biden and the lockdown ordering Donald Trump. A sense of of nostalgia for a lost and forgotten era has creeped into my thoughts. For my nostalgia's sake, at least that was a long time ago and it never really happened anyway. He says on Mother's Day in 2021, after all the official mandates had ended, my family was kicked out of an ice cream shop for not wearing masks. We were living in an entirely different world. Now, he says, I should have reached this conclusion sooner. I'd already withdrawn my children from the public schools. I'd already lost friends. But he says, the question plagued me. Why? I thought we were beyond an event like the pandemic response. People were mostly reasonable. We were educated. We had the technology and knowledge to accumulate data and spread it far and wide quickly. But he says, I was wrong. And so I read. He said, I read books like The Rape of the Mind, Ordinary Men, Life Unworthy of Life, Defying Hitler. It was a long time ago and it never happened anyway. The Guillotine and the Cross, The Revolt of the Masses, Testimony, The Memoirs of Dmitry Shostakovich, and others. Just the usual light Sunday afternoon reading. I do like that tongue-in-cheek humor. 
Now, he says, I understood the protagonist in defying Hitler. He opposed the racial segregation and later murder of the Jews. He watched his society descend into the grips of madness and his friendships disintegrate over issues as serious as segregation and industrial slaughter. I watched a strange society spring to life and my friendships disintegrate over an issue as ridiculous as covering one's face. He says, I was terrified by the implication that ordinary men would facilitate all sorts of madness just to conform to a group's standard. I watched as schools were shut down, businesses were closed, and livelihoods and friendships were destroyed in conformity by our brothers, sisters, friends, and neighbors. I learned how life unworthy of life is ripe for extermination by completely rational actors pursuing their delusions systematically. I learned it could be considered good taste to deny organ transplants to the unvaccinated. In fact, it's completely legal. I was exasperated as Shostakovich, as he watched the abject idiocy in the professional class around him, conform to the ridiculous behaviors to avoid the gulag and yet still be sent there anyway. There were betrayals, torture, death, and then there was reform. Denunciations and executions were suddenly erased from memory. Prisoners were rehabilitated, and all of it was for naught. Captor and captive were citizens and neighbors again. After all, it was a long time ago, and it never happened anyway, the book I shamelessly stole the title of this piece from. But he says, my perspectives have vastly changed. I realize now that totalitarianism is primarily a society-wide delusion that enables despots to flourish with power. And he says, that's opposite of my beliefs before. I used to think that it was the despots who used their power to create the totalitarian society. The innate goodness and beauty in all people becomes hijacked by terrible ideas. Willing participants believing in the truth of the idea then create a burgeoning inhumanity masquerading as virtue and they execute it systematically. Now he says, that's a simple fact I'd never considered. A deluded person is perfectly capable of applying their delusion rationally. One-way grocery aisles, masked toddlers, and vaccine segregation are all rational applications of what most now see as the mistaken COVID ideology. He says, rationalization allows participants to maintain the delusion even in the face of massive contradictory evidence. The personal investments often enhanced by the performance of often bizarre new rituals. And those rituals work to reinforce the investment and lead to the expression of rage when challenged. Rage even towards them, even towards those closest to them. Now the rituals and new virtues work hand in hand to create a powerful mix of emotion in the participants. And it's difficult to understand, but a strange combination of both victimhood and heroism are stimulated. It's a compelling mix. We can see this in a quote by Maximilien Robespierre. In his last speech, both victim and hero, Robespierre makes several statements that find relevance today. Quote, The enemies of the Republic call me tyrant. I confess that I have sometimes feared that I should be sullied in the eyes of posterity by the impure neighborhood of unprincipled men. Inscribe rather thereon these words. Death is the commencement of immortality. I leave to the oppressors of the people a terrible testament which I proclaim with the independence befitting one whose career is so nearly ended. End quote. Now those words are not far removed 
from sentiments expressed by our current crop of political leaders. And the point here is that if we become unable to realize the extent of the damage and the inhumanity collectively celebrated, we will find ourselves in a situation where passivity and impunity of our officials lead to the further degradation of the value attached to human life. In other words, we've got to correct these folks. Now, in stark contrast is the Enlightenment ideal of the reasoned individual, free to lead his own life for his own purposes, life celebrated as a meaningful end in itself. So if we believe our lives are meaningful ends in themselves, we free ourselves to pursue mastery through self-improvement and by continuously refining our, institu- our intuitions rather, in service of ourselves and those around us. We free ourselves to seek beauty even in tragedy. Now, that concept used to be a central tenet of older philosophy. And he actually links to a couple of uh, different scenes. The perfect cherry blossom, looking for the perfect cherry blossom and finding it at the moment of death when all is lost. But above all, the idea is that totalitarianism is a lie. And it's a lie that we tell ourselves, and by doing so we discover, this is quoting uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky from the Brothers Kamarazov, A man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to a point where he does not discern any truth either in himself or anywhere around him and thus falls into disrespect toward himself and others. Not respecting anyone, he ceases to love. A man who lies to himself is often the first to take offense. Taking offense gives him great pleasure and thus he reaches the point of real hostility. End quote. Now Charles Kerblich says, look, Lucky for us, the madness is behind us and for now only lives in our past. This election, we look set to repeat what also occurred in the midst of madness, but after all, it was long ago and it never really happened anyway. So he says, today as we do our best to navigate the hostility of the perpetually offended, we must find more time to listen to those who, like Dostoevsky's idiot, are still exclaiming, beauty will save the world. Interesting article. And, and I, I have to admit, I, you know, I go back and forth on this. On the one hand, I am a believer in the power of forgiveness. And I mean forgiveness in the sense of, look, I offer forgiveness and I'm willing to let it go. Now, that's not the same thing as, and therefore, we'll just pretend like this never happened. And, you know, I, I'll, never, uh, I'll never look at you with any kind of askance as far as, uh, you know, if you did something wrong. But my big concern remains the people who pushed all of this nonsense on us still have access to power. They are still able to do this again if they wanted to. Now, that doesn't mean that our cooperation is guaranteed. In fact, I think there'd probably be a lot more people who put their foot down harder and faster than we did before. But the big pressing need has got to be to remove the people who pushed the lockdowns and all of the other nonsense on us. we got to remove them from power. Separate them from power. That's, I guess, the best way to put it. Now, that can be done at the ballot box. It can also be done just by ignoring them, but uh, I think it would be best if we we took away (laughs) their gavel and uh, let them come back down to earth with the rest of us rather than trusting them to do the right thing the next time an emergency arises.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Final segment of today's program. We'll get to the article of the day. This is going to be useful information. It's about how to tell when you're really in love. I know you didn't. You found your true love a long time ago, right? Or you gave up. (laughs) I don't know which, but I thought this was really solid advice from Annie Holmquist. I'll get to that in a few moments. I wanted to take a moment, though, to just go down the rabbit hole a little bit. Peter Olson, writing for AmericanThinker.com, asks the question, what is it about celebrity that corrupts? And I want you to think of this in terms of, you know, I mean, look, if fame and fortune were really the answers to, to life's problems, that would be one thing. And I think it was Jim Carrey who famously said, I wish everybody could be rich and famous just so they could see that it solves nothing <laughs> or that it doesn't, it doesn't solve all of their problems. But isn't it crazy how the people who have that fame and notoriety and, and fortune sometimes tend to be the ones who paint themselves into a corner that they just absolutely can't get out of. Now, I like that Peter Olson starts with a verse from Ecclesiastes. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Ah, the old preacher got that one right. So what is it about celebrity, notoriety, and fame that distorts, corrupts, and degrades the conscience, morality, and ethics of celebrities? Do some celebrities, like Icarus, metaphorically and psychologically fly too close to the sun? And from here, Peter Olson goes through uh, a few possibilities. What is it that, that causes this? Why does the status of star stir the star's narcissism beyond healthy vocational satisfaction and self-esteem? Is star power so seductive that it dissolves humility and moral integrity? How does inevitable human acquisitiveness progress to consuming greed and a seeming inevitable worship of wealth as a, for, as a source of fame, power, and prestige? Do fame, fortune, and celebrity seductively whisper to inner fantasies or illusions of invulnerability, omnipotence, godlike immortality, a selfie with a star or clicks on the internet for all-seeking brief celebrity? Now think about some of the celebrities, for instance, Bill Cosby. I mean, this guy helped us laugh for decades. He and Felicia Rashad helped us find lively entertainment in the family life of Dr. Dr. Huxtable. We grieved with Cosby at the tragic loss of his college-aged son by murder. Now we experience collective shock, disbelief, revulsion, and sadness at reports of his alleged misuse of celebrity power via sexual abuse of many women. Is Cosby's star status located too close to the sun? Here's another one we may not really think of as a celebrity, but as far as notoriety, George Soros. Over the years, billionaire celebrity George Soros has given voice to this sense of grandiosity many times and in a variety of different ways. For instance, in his, 18, in his 1987 book, well, that was an interesting Freudian slip, 1987 book, The Alchemy of Finance, he wrote, I admit that I have always harbored an exaggerated view of self-importance. To put it bluntly, I fancied myself as some kind of god or economic reformer like Keynes or, even better, a scientist like Einstein. In fact, expanding on this theme in his 1991 book, Underwriting Democracy, Soros said, If truth be known, 
I carried some rather potent messianic fantasies with me from childhood, fantasies which I wanted to indulge to the extent that I could afford. In a June 1993 interview with The Independent, Soros, who is an atheist, said he saw himself as some kind of God, the creator of everything. Two years later, in an interview, he portrayed himself as someone who shared numerous attributes with God in the Old Testament. You know, like invisible. I was pretty invisible. Benevolent. I was pretty benevolent. All-seeing. I tried to be all-seeing. Wow. Now, he told his biographer, Michael Kaufman, his goal was nothing less ambitious than to become the conscience of the world by using his charitable foundations. And from here, the article shifts and talks about American presidents as celebrities. You know, the funny thing about this is uh, the the Mike Judge movie, Idiocracy, kind of takes it to the logical end of how far can this president's celebrity worship go? And I don't want to spoil the movie for you, but I will tell you the president 500 years from now because we removed consequences for bad or stupid behavior. The president is a pro wrestler slash porn star and just absolutely out of control. But that's why he's president, right? Because everybody knows who he is. So when you think about the uh, the charm of Bill Clinton or Obama, their charisma, their celebrity status, and I've talked to people who've actually, you know, you know, been in the room with Bill Clinton. Uh, one one gal that I worked with, and, and granted, you know, she she leans hard to the left, so she was already pretty happy with with his politics. But she said, "Oh my gosh, Bill Clinton when he walks into the room, it just like it sucks all the air right out of the room." Very very charismatic. And I guess that's that's how it was for, for Bill. Charm may have its earliest origin in the smile response that occurs normally at three or four months of human development, but a charming smile helps caretakers to bond and delight with the infant. And some infants, more than others, have the gift of more glowing smiles. So, in the Darwinian sense, this article tells us the smile reduces any potential propensity to destroy or harm the innocent infant by a stranger. And I guess Bill Clinton was always his teacher's pet. He was the master of political maneuvering. Barack Obama's smile says volumes before he ever says a word. And from here, the article goes on to talk about celebrity and narcissism and how the erosion of a celebrity's soul appears to get more active the longer the time period of his or her status ferments. Over the early years of fame, the early years rather of famous performers often reveal a delightful Billy Budd sort of innocence. Then over time, Economic fame and fortune accumulate, percolate, and gain momentum almost in direct proportion to the glitzy mirrors of TV and movie cameras. Remember what Elvis was like, or Kurt Cobain, or Michael Jackson toward their, towards their uh, drug-addled ends? So the adoring fans, media, voters, entourages, and political minions who would not dare dent their celebrity hero's narcissism by speaking truth to celebrity power, they're not going to be any help. And it's a rare celebrity that maintains sufficient humility, maturity, and wisdom about the danger of falling in love with their own image or words. Billy Graham, Martin Luther King Jr., Harry Truman, George Bush Sr., and Ronald Reagan, just a few who avoided flying too close to the son of celebrity. Their good character trumped possible pathological narcissism. Interesting take. 
And I think it's also a good reason not to really seek after the fame and fortune. I've, I've met a few people and worked with a few people who, as, as their uh, name recognition grew, so did their hubris. And, and so did their, their sense of, of self-importance. And, you know, and I'm sure I've been there myself, too. I did at some point have to sell my ego in order to pay bills, but that was, uh, that was a real eye-opener. All right, I want to shift gears just one more time here. This is the article of the day. How can you know if you're truly in love? Annie Holmquist can always be counted on for a good take, and that's why I'm linking to her article. You know, you have uh, young people today having have a hard time saying that I love you to their significant others. So how do you know what true love looks like? And I love that she refers to C.S. Lewis and some of the profound insights in his book, The Four Loves, using the term eros to refer to the romantic state we call being in love. Now, among the things that, uh, that she identifies is this, these are ways to know that you're truly in love. Number one is a desire for exclusivity. In other words, you don't want to share your beloved with another lover. If one who was first in the deep and full sense your friend is then gradually or suddenly revealed as also your lover, you certainly don't want to share the beloved's erotic love with any third. Number two is delight in the lover's friends. In other words, are you secure enough that you can love their friends and spend time with their friends? Number three, preoccupation. Continual thoughts of the, of the object of one's affections, usually another sign of true love. Now, we're not talking about just sexually laced fantasies, but it's more like thinking of that person, thinking about their happiness. That makes sense. Number four, you're not a scorekeeper. In other words, you're not trying to, you know, make sure we're keeping things perfectly balanced. I scratched your back. Now you have to scratch mine. You give because you love them. Number five is a sense of humor. True love finds couples sharing a laugh with and at each other. Number six, this is probably the, uh, the most important, selflessness. Love puts self second and the beloved first. I see nothing to disagree with with any of these observations and the fact that uh, she backs him up with, uh, with quotes from C.S. Lewis. Well, let's just say that impresses me. So I'll have a link to uh, Annie's article. You'll find it in my show notes at the thebrianhideshow.com. Show notes for February 7th, 2024. And again, kudos to Annie Holmquist for six ways to know if you're truly in love. Might be something I share with my kids. This is The Brian Hyde Show.